Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 94. This week we have two guests, Alan Rhodes and Harvey Mosley. They're here to talk to us about SOFIA, our flying telescope that studies the universe from 45,000 feet. They also explain their work creating new instruments for SOFIA, including ones that will help us understand how water vapor, ice, and oxygen combine with dust to form the mass that may one day become a planet. Alan is the instrument development manager for SOFIA and is with us in the studio. Harvey is a senior astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and is joining us from the studio there. So let's get right to our conversation with Alan Rhodes and Harvey Mosley. We have just a one-on-one thing in the studio, a little bit more fun, because we have Harvey sitting over at Goddard uh, through the magic of <laughs> the, technology. The, uh, yeah. technology, the electromagnetic. The internet thing, it might catch on. Exactly. <laughs> I hear it's doing a lot of good stuff. So, um, yeah, so we have, we have Harvey sitting over at Goddard. We have Alan sitting in the studio with us. And you'll hear Cassandra's voice. Hello. See, most of you will be familiar with Cassandra, some of the reads that we've done on the podcast. Um, so and Cassandra's one of the science communicators that works over in the communications and public affairs sitting over here with us. But we always start this off the same way. I'll start off with Alan because you're closest to me. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? I, it, it's a crazy story. I don't believe it, and I lived it. Um, but it's it's still one of those things where I've just I've literally have bounced around the planet for a while. Uh, started off in the the swamps of North Florida. Uh, it was it was one of those things where it, it had been my dream since I was two. Uh, being the brilliant person I am, I'm like, <laughs> I want to go into space. What's the best way to do that? I'll start with submarines. Um, but actually wound up working out. I made a bunch of great friends that actually wound up helping uh, when I finally got the call. Uh, I was actually in New Zealand at the time and oh, wow. got a call from the Johnson Space Center saying, hey, you want to come help us get to the moon? I absolutely. <laughs> um, but have bounced around, done a lot of uh, really fun things. I was lucky enough to find a way back into the NASA family in the 2015-2016 time frame. And the folks called me up and said, hey, uh, we bought us a 747, cut a garage door out the side, and stuck a telescope in the hole. <laughs> I'm like, well, of course you did. Um, and it's just been nonstop fun just because of the fact that it's not just the observations that we get to do and it's not just the fact that we literally are the point of the spear on so many different technologies it's this idea of you get to go hang out with people that have things in outer space named for them and they're just down the hall and it's like oh hey i (laughs) just heard about you because we're going to stare at something you named that's cool Oh, that's quite a space pedigree, like mix of Florida, some Texas, and now over here in California. It's been fun. (laughs) So how about you, Harvey? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, How did you end up in NASA, and how did you end up landing over in Goddard? Well, it's been a pretty long and strange uh, strange journey as well. I uh, grew up way out in the country in southern Virginia. Went away to college and then to grad school, went to University of Chicago. And I uh, got involved with a pro- with a program that was doing observations from a Learjet. I couldn't believe it. They were flying a small telescope on a Learjet and doing infrared measurements. So uh, soon that turned into a C-141, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, 
and we ended up being the first generation of people doing airborne far infrared astronomy. When I finished my degree at Chicago, I heard that at uh, at Goddard that there was a group that was putting together a project to look at the leftover radiation from the Big Bang. It was called the Cosmic Background Explorer. And I said, you know, that sounds like a pretty neat thing to get involved with. And you say, well, what does that have to do with flying airplanes or whatever? Mm-hmm. But it turned out that the instruments and the technology that we had developed for that were pretty much the same. So. I ended up coming to Goddard, and uh, that was 30. <laughs> We're all oh, shaking gosh, our heads. Let's see, 37 <laughs> years ago. So it's uh, no, no, 30, oh, 38 years ago. So it's been a while, but uh, it's been it's it's been fun. There's been a pretty wide-ranging kind of experience here, going from. The Cosmic Background Explorer, which actually came out pretty well. The two leaders of that, uh, John Mather and George Smoot, won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2006 for the uh, for the discoveries that were made on the with Kobe. And then since that, I've done a, a number of uh, have been involved in a number of really interesting things. I developed a, a a new way to do X-ray spectroscopy called the X-ray microcalorimeter which has been uh, now the uh, sort of spectrometer of choice for uh, space X-ray astronomy. And uh, so watching the development of that has been fun. More recently, I was uh, involved with the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. We developed a new micromechanical device that would allow, rather than looking at one distant galaxy at the time, we can actually simultaneously observe as many as a hundred. So, with this was something that we did, with, that we developed uh, to basically um, enhance the capability to enable science programs on that that just would have been impossible otherwise, unless it had such an impact. I'm sure that they would have never decided to do such a speculative development in the course of a of a actual development, but they did because they thought it was worth doing, and we were able to deliver that, but it was sort of scary. For a number of years, I felt like in the old cartoons, you had the little guy running and <laughs> looking back over his shoulder at the locomotive coming. Nice. <laughs> we did that for a decade. And now, for the last uh, bit, I've been working on the Hermes instrument, an instrument for Sophia that's going to explore uh, systems such as the one dust planetary, protoplanetary disk system, cloud systems that will become uh, solar systems much like our own. So there you go. That's my (laughs) life. Like when I pick up the phone, and he picks up on the other end. It's like you pick up, and there's a Hall of Famer that's always on the other end, and you start to get you know used to the fact of well, of course, everybody else I've talked to has a Nobel, and I don't, and it's just <laughs> the idea of living up to that sort of thing is just daunting to say the least. So, Alan, can you tell us a little bit about Sophia? Harvey just talked about one of the really cool instruments, and you talked about uh, cutting the hole in the side of the yeah. plane. But just for our listeners who might not have heard about Sophia, absolutely, and and it's th- when you see it, it that's when it really sets in for me. 
imagine a 747 and and the the wild thing to me is because i've flown on it a number of times otherwise i wouldn't i, I wouldn't be able to say it works but we actually did this we did all the work necessary to cut what looks like a garage door out of the back side of a 747 did the work necessary to stick a telescope that we can move around while the plane's flying and in it, it is it it looks like a 747 just with a huge hole out of the side of it and what this does is it allows us to move this telescope around wherever we need it to go do we need it to go to 45,000 fi- feet and get above the water vapor in the earth's atmosphere mm-hmm. done do we need to go fly it somewhere over the middle of the pacific ocean and observe you know one planet getting in between us and a star done we can do that it's this flexibility of you know, it, it's taking those constants. What is a constant of a telescope? Well, it's stuck to the ground. Well, yeah, not exactly. anymore. NASA <laughs> can fix that. We'll g- get a 747 and cut a hole out of the side. I can tell you, you sit there in the cockpit with the pilots, and and the first time I was there, he, the co-pilot turned around and he said, did you feel anything? I said, what are you talking about? He said, we just opened the door. We just <laughs> opened the door to a gaping hole in the side of a plane, and you do not feel a thing at 45,000 feet. It is amazing. Well, that's yeah. the crazy thing that I, from chatting with people about this, is like you have the land-based telescopes, you have the space-based you know, telescopes, and they're all gathering information. But Sophia fits in this unique thing where it's mobile, but it's not only just like you can move all over the world and fly, but it's also like you get to land and people yeah. can like upkeep it and switch out instruments. And yeah, and that's one of the really special things about Sophia, and I think people would like to know more. So in space, we have instruments on our space telescopes, but Sophia has instruments and you know, we can change those out. That's a great point. And that's one of the fun things about the program is when you when you start the work to do a, a space-based system, you have to, at some point, say, okay, we have to lock down the development. We have to make totally. a decision and say, we're flying this, we're not going to change this anymore. So FIA fits in this cool area where... Uh, we're able to say, okay, well, we have been flying this, but there's this guy named Harvey Mosley, and he's got this really cool idea. Why don't we go talk to Harvey and the team and see what they can do, that they can make something new for us? So we had we have a set of instruments. We can switch them out. We can go fly whatever we want to observe. You want to observe in this part of the spectrum? We got it. No problem. You want to go observe this way? Sure, we can do that too. But I think one of the real strengths of Sophia is as technology changes, we're not limited by the fact that we're going to have to launch something that we can't go maintain. We can land, we can take this new technology, we can take all the developments that we're making and actually make brand new instruments. And I just got to tell you, the, the, the magic of this instrument making, and I do, it's, it's so close to magic. We're at minus 459 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, okay. I, I don't know how to describe cold other than without <laughs> any exaggeration, we are milli degrees from breaking the universe. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where Harvey and the team works. And so this idea that, that not only are they bridging the gaps in technology, not only are they bringing new capabilities to Sophia, but they're doing, in, they're doing so in such a manner that is, is saying the word this is difficult just belittles the word difficult beyond my imagination. What Harvey and the teams do actually take technology that we have never dreamed of, turn it into reality, and then put it on a plane for us to go make those next great leaps in discovery. And it is just amazing to be a part of this team. 
And Harvey, you're, the instrument is called Hermes, and it's going to study how what water, ice, and mm-hmm. oxygen combine to form planetary systems. Is that right? Well, yeah, we we're interested in looking at planetary systems just when they're uh, coming together and forming. Uh, the gas that's left over from the formation of a star can produce a, a disk around it that orbits around in a plane. And at some point, the density gets high enough so that the, you'll start forming solid materials. And very, very quickly, you can start to generate, you can start to create planets. So we are very interested in uh, looking at these systems like this and finding out where the water in these systems uh, lives because, you know, water makes a huge difference. Uh, the earth wouldn't be what it is without the water. So how did the water get on the earth? And mm-hmm. is, is this something that's going to be universal among planetary systems? And then uh, farther out in the, uh, in the dust cloud, uh, the water will be in solid form in the form of ice. That's believed to be a major component of the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in our uh, solar system. So we want to look at these, at these uh, sort of solar systems in training, if you will, and find out if the history that made our solar system is as typical or is it unique. And so we are building an instrument that will let us answer a number of questions about that. I think that that Harvey brings up one of the fascinating points that I had not considered until getting the chance to sit with Harvey and the team. It's a question that that seems so fundamental we don't even ask, how did the water get here? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's so fundamental to what it means to be human, what it means to have life, but we don't truly know the answer. And so Hermes and Harvey and the team, they're actually looking to, to make, you know, insights into what, you know, without water, to the best of our knowledge, we don't have life. And to answer that question, how did it get here? And I, I love the fact that you, you're, you're able to look at questions that you may not even consider and think, oh, Wow. We don't know the answer to that. Let's go find out. And so you're building Hermes out at Goddard, but Sophia flies out of Armstrong in California. So at some point, you have to bring that out. Can you tell us how that's going to work? Yeah, we will uh, We will build the instrument here. We'll put it together, and we'll test it. When it looks like it's meeting all the performance requirements that it has to do, we get it all working. Then we'll ship it out to uh, Palmdale, where Sophia lives. We will install it on the uh, plane, and we'll do a number of, uh, of test flights with the instrument where we will take it through its paces. We hope we'll actually get some uh, good scientific results in that period as well. Uh, but we'll work with the team out there to get it working. We will, they will learn how to operate it, and um, at some point when it's all working well, then we will uh, we will turn it over to uh, Sophia, and they will operate it, and it will be generally available to the world astronomical community. They will they can think up uh, questions that can be uh, that can be answered with it, and they'll put in competitive proposals and find out if they get selected, and if so, they'll go and do those measurements with Sophia. Very cool. 
that's one thing that it's always interesting to keep perspective on. And this is the cool thing about my job when I get to like hang out and talk to people about this stuff is you have this insane like engineering that comes around to a, like to building these, um, these instruments, the, you know, all, all of this, this information to gather it in. But when it comes down to it, it's all about the science. Yeah. You're, you're not doing it just for fun. It's a matter. It's all about better understanding the universe. And it's not just like here at NASA or even at the different centers. It's the entire international community and sharing that information. So, I, I would imagine that even after the instrument is past its end of life, there's still people that could use that data to write papers and come up with stuff. It's like uh, absolutely lives on. It, it, yeah. to, to me, I've always looked at it as is it's a giant puzzle. We're not sure how many pieces there are, but we've got some pieces in front of us, and we're starting to put those together. And as we put them together, we get different shapes of things that we're missing. So then we go and try and find that puzzle. And it's it's this idea of this information about how water got here, and then you can take that, share that with the international community, and maybe you know one of the teams with, uh, let's say, one of the telescopes in Chile, they go, oh, mm-hmm. hey, we got another piece. Let's put these two things together, and if we go off and study this, then uh-huh. we understand even further. And it's this idea, as Harvey said, you know, this international community that has a set of knowledge. If we start making these different connections, if we start providing new insights to things that we had never thought of, that's where we're going to start to go, oh, you know what we really ought to do? We really ought to go look at this. Because in the end, mm-hmm. we can't look at everything. We, totally. We'd love to, but if we can start to say, these are places of significant interest, these are targets we really ought to go look at, then we can start to do things. Better, inst- newer instruments on Sophia, you know, newer in-space missions. You know, Where are we going to go next? I mean, this is where all these, to me, all these fundamental questions feed into what's next. Uh, I think that that by by having a team not just here but throughout you know as we say the international community that's that's going to be where we start to get these new answers so building on where we're going next uh what's that next after hermes do we have another new instrument to me this is a truly fascinating time and that one of the things that we've tried to work with the team in sophia the team at nasa headquarters and and to really say okay what's the best way to ask a very fundamental question? Is it to go to a community and say, well, you know, we think we want this piece of technology or we think we want this kind of instrument. And we we had a lot of discussions. And I think for the first time, one of the things that we're really doing is saying, maybe we've been asking the question wrong. Mm-hmm. What, what if we go forward with, with just what sounds like a kind of a simplistic question, but to me it gets at, you know, Matt, what we were talking about a, a little bit earlier, where it's what is the fundamental nature of what we want to do, and that's science. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, you know, what we've done in the past, where we may have had an idea, or we may have had, a, you know, a timeline, or we may have had a, a preconceived idea, we're actually going to the community, and we're going to everyone we can get a hold of and saying, tell us without any, just tell us the science that we can go complete together. Let's not talk about necessarily, you know, all the details of the instrumentation or how we're going to get it on the plane or what we're going to do. No, just say, we've got a two and a half meter flying telescope. We've got the only one in the world. We want to work together. We've got this capability. You've got the science in your minds and we're going to every university group and, and institution we can think of to ask them just the question of what is the science we can complete together. 
And we're already starting to hear some stunningly fascinating answers. So, Cassandra, to answer your question, what is next? We are in the search for that right now. Mm -hmm. And as I say to the universities I've had lucky enough to been visited (laughs) yet, uh, if we haven't visited you yet, we will visit you soon. So stay tuned. Uh, We are trying (laughs) to make sure that we visit everyone we possibly can. But to me, the, the... the fascinating and super exciting part is we are changing the fundamental question. We're simply going forward and saying, tell us the great science that we can complete together with this one-of-a-kind observatory that, that gives us an insight into the, into the astronomical world that we don't have anywhere else. So Hermes, this is a new instrument that's in the process of being built, right? Um, right. How, how many is this? Well, Harvey, is this the first instrument that you've worked on, or how many instruments are there? And kind of go through some of that process, and I'd imagine for years to come there'll be still be new ones. But give people yeah. kind of an, an idea of what they're looking at here. Well, is it my first instrument? <laughs> well, it's my first Sophia instrument. Although I did work on the Hawk instrument that's flying on. Uh, uh, Sophia, but as a as a minor contributor. However, from the time I started with the Learjet in the mid 1970s yeah. until now, the work that we've done has involved building large numbers of increasingly complicated and increasingly capable uh, instruments. So the answer is yes. I've built lots <laughs> of. Uh, <laughs> Lots of, uh, of airborne uh, instruments for airborne astronomy in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, we built the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite. Uh, I worked, uh, I was an instrument scientist for one of the instruments on the Spitzer Space Telescope. Um, I'm a, a co-investigator on uh, X-ray microcalorimeter with the Japanese, being built with the Japanese, with JWST. Uh, I'm a member of the European instrument team on that for the uh, near-infrared spectrometer, and now I'm doing, I'm building Sophia. So the answer is, this is the uh, end of a pretty long road of. of it's not your first rodeo. Yeah, I get to talk to him on the a, phone. It's crazy. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and Alan, you're our instrument uh, manager at Sophia, so it's not just Hermes and Hawk. We have. Other instruments, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, just to go to to, to Harvey, to just it, it is. I mean that it is just so much fun to be able to 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 be on the phone calls with you and go, yeah, yeah. Look what he's done. That's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. With, for, with regards to the instrumentation that Sophia has, we do have about uh, seven instruments right now. But one of the things that we're doing, just like you do with your laptop or your TV or things, as the technology changes. We retire the instruments that were developed uh, with some of the older technologies, and we work with teams like Harvey to find the new technologies, to find the new methods, and we make new instruments with the new technology as we go. It's just with regards to you know something that you have to launch in, into orbit, you don't have that opportunity. I think it's one of the biggest strengths, though, that Sophia has to say, okay, as the technology changes, just like you would with your phone, we have the opportunity to take that new technology, bring it into our instrumentation suite, and then go from something like, you know, some of our instruments had as little as one pixel. Oh, wow. And one single pixel. And now we're, you know, taking those instruments and moving them into hundreds. So it is, you know, a significant increase in the technology, but that only comes from having that ability to swap out instruments when you land and to develop new instruments as the technology grows. 
Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important to understand is that when you want to put new uh, sensors uh, into these instruments, it's not like you go down to the sensor store and buy a new one. <laughs> exactly. Th- these are these are things that we typically that are very specialized, and we typically have to build these from scratch. So that ends up being a significant part uh, of the development of the instrument. Uh, over uh, some of the instruments on uh, on uh, Sophia have detectors that are at least um, specialized commercial devices, but many of them uh, are only produced by the research groups that do this kind of work. And so uh, my uh, group uh, actually has done a lot of this sort of work for for many years. So, Alan, can you um, describe Sophia briefly to us? Yeah, absolutely. Sophia, the the question there was, how do we find a window into a world that we are into an astronomical world that we can't see from the ground? Mm -hmm. To see into the infrared, one of the things that we need to do is get above the water vapor. The water vapor exists all the way up to about 40,000 feet in the Earth's atmosphere. So you're, you either have to get something into orbit, but that comes with some decisions you have to make, or can you do something with an existing airplane that would allow us to get high enough where we're above the water vapor? Well, that was kind of the birth of the Sophia idea. It actually comes from, as, as even as Harvey's mentioned, you know, the, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory and even the Learjets before that, is what can we do to see to open a window into the infrared universe that we can't see from the ground? So what we did with Sophia is we, jokingly, I, I say that we bought a 747 and cut a garage door out the whole of it. <laughs> but, but that's what we did. It is a 747 with a, a, uh, a large portion of the fuselage uh, near the tail that has been cut away so that we can put a telescope in that hole. Uh, We're able to take the plane. We generally fly it out of the uh, Los Angeles area, but we can take the plane flight wherever we need to go. Uh, we're able to get up to that 40,000, 45,000 foot range and you know, well above where commercial airliners are so that we can have an open window into the infrared world and we can see things that you cannot see from the ground. One of the most amazing pictures you'll see, you know, there's a, a really famous constellation called Orion. Uh, mm-hmm. In the winter, it's, it's in the south, but many people will know it because of the belt, the, the three yeah. stars in a line. If you do a search for an infrared picture of the Orion constellation, what we see at night, we see three stars. Mm -hmm. We see a little belt. If you look at Orion in the infrared, just a nudge different in the spectrum from visible. So we're really close to visible, but we're just a nudge off. Giant fireballs of light. I mean, it looks nothing like what Orion looks in the visible. And we're right next to that, but we can't see any of that from Earth. You have to get up above the water vapor so that we can see into this brand new world where we can make discoveries that are literally impossible from the ground because we can't see through the water. And it, you know, you take a famous constellation like that and say, well, if Orion's this different, Mm -hmm. what does the rest of the the infrared universe look like? And I can tell you when we're lucky enough to get to the, the Southern Hemisphere and fly out of New Zealand, which another awesome thing that the plane can do, it changes significantly. To be able to look into the galactic core, to be able to see what that universe looks like in the infrared, it is. it allows us to, to fit those pieces of the puzzle together one by one by one so that we can move into new discoveries using you know, some of the greatest tools we have, such as the SOFIA Observatory. 
And Sophia is not the first airborne. So you talked about the Learjet and yeah, the and Kuiper. Talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you just tell us a little bit about the history of airborne astronomy? So uh, the Learjet, the Kuiper, and then now on to Sophia. Sort of how that progressed. Yeah, back in the late '60s, uh, Frank Lowe, who was one of the uh, one of the sort of fathers of infrared astronomy, uh, realized that if we could get above the water vapor in the atmosphere, it would be possible to open this far infrared spectral region where the uh, atmosphere is opaque primarily because of water vapor in our atmosphere. And by going up to 45,000 feet, you get above the, above almost all of that, more than 99% of it. So he went to NASA, and they had a, a Learjet, and they said, well, maybe we could use it. So I think the first telescope they built was a little 12-inch diameter telescope, and I think they might have temporarily mounted it in an emergency exit. <laughs> uh, I think and, I've seen pictures of that, yes. Yeah, and, the, the, and so the... That was flown for a couple of years, and then they did a permanent modification to the Learjet, and that was the configuration it was in when I was flying it around 1974. But we could fly that uh, plane it, with two people. We'd have uh, somebody running the telescope and somebody running the, uh, the uh, control electronics. So we uh, did a whole lot of the very early uh, measurements, early far infrared measurements of brightnesses of the planets in the solar system. Basically, everything we looked at was new. There was no, there was no knowledge whatever of the far infrared sky at that point. Then in 1974, the uh, NASA had developed the Kuiper Airborne Observatory that had a uh, roughly 36-inch diameter telescope, much bigger than the Learjet telescope. And so immediately, my group at the University of Chicago, led by Al Harper, who was one of Frank Lowe's students from starting out, um, we started building instruments to take advantage of this, uh, of this observatory. And it was, again, amazing, because everything we looked at was new. Uh, we discovered internal heat sources in Uranus and Neptune. We realized that they were emitting more energy than they received from the sun. We uh, found that many uh, galaxies had uh, extremely bright infrared sources in their center and were emitting much, much more power in the infrared part of the spectrum than in the optical light that we could uh, familiarly see. So it was it was basically all all new at that point, and so it didn't uh, you know there wasn't a whole lot of specialization. We were uh, basically uh, like sort of kids in the candy store trying to uh, understand what the sky looked like. Since that time, uh, the uh, with some long-lived uh, space observatories, we have a better idea of what the sky is like. Uh, so. Uh, right now, SOFIA is a larger telescope, and it allows us to build uh, some very sophisticated specialized instruments that can follow up and do the kinds of measurements on the objects in the sky that just can't be done from any existing space-borne instruments. Uh, an example of that is the Hermes instrument that we're building one of the capabilities that hasn't really existed since the days of the of the Kuiper is the ability to look in the part of the infrared spectrum 
where there's a strong feature due to water ice. And so we are going to be able to look at that and be able to determine how much solid water, how much water ice there is in these uh, protoplanetary clouds so that we can understand how the water how the water is distributed and get some idea about how it might be transported in the process of, uh, of uh, planet formation. So these are, you know, we have the opportunity to build these uh, capabilities to ask uh, more and more specialized questions uh, about the uh, objects that have been found in some of the large surveys from the space missions. So I'll throw it on over to Cassandra. So for folks who are listening, who uh, want to learn more about Sophia, want to know how they can get in contact, so. Yeah, uh, well, nasa.gov slash Sophia is our, kind of our homepage, but we're also all over social media, so find <laughs> us at Sophia Telescope. Nice, and we're at NASA Ames. Um, but yeah, so if anybody's got questions for Alan or for Harvey, just send them on in uh, over on the comments and we'll get back to you guys. So Absolutely. But yeah. thank you so much, Harvey and Alan and Cassandra. Thank you so much for coming on over. This has been way fun. Yeah, yeah a yeah. lot of fun. Thank you all very, fun, very yeah, much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You have been listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Remember, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends at Houston. We have a podcast. There's also Gravity Assist. There's This Week at NASA. And if you're a music fan, don't forget to check out Third Rock Radio. The best way to capture all of this content is to subscribe to our omnibus RSS feed called NASA Casts or visit the NASA app on iOS, Android or anywhere you find your apps.